0: You can learn more about student visionaries of the year or even nominate a student at LLS.org slash students. That's LLS dot org slash
1: students.
0: Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret, and or forgotten histories, of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, Bela and Boris.
2: Once upon a time, many, many years ago, I am Dracula. It's alive! In the name of God! Now I know what it feels like to be God! I was greater than any real, Hermione. Sure, sure. Awake. Have I been asleep? She hate me. My A race of atomic supermen which will conquer the world.
1: <laughs>
2: the phone is dead. Even the phone
1: is dead. We belong dead.
0: Last week, we introduced you to Bela Legosi and Boris Karloff. This week, we're going to go deep on Legosi. When last we left him, Bela was a struggling immigrant on the wrong side of his 40th birthday with few prospects for stardom. And then he was invited to play the vampire who would define the rest of his career and his life. Today, we're going to focus on Bela Lugosi as Dracula and in other vampire roles that came to him over the course of the next 20 years because of all he instantly came to represent on screen in that very first leading performance. To keep our conversation vampire-focused, we're going to have to skip around in time a bit, but never fear. Most major films of Lugosi's career that are not discussed today will be touched on later in this series. So for now, sit back, relax, and protect your neck as we sink our teeth into the story of Bela Lugosi and his vampires. Bela Lugosi was not the first movie vampire. Nearly a decade before he became a star as Dracula, The German expressionist horror film Nosferatu had adapted Bram Stoker's novel, but with names changed to avoid a copyright infringement lawsuit from the Stoker estate. Stoker's widow sued anyway, and one, and all, prints of Nosferatu were ordered to be burned. This effort at total censorship was not entirely successful. At least one print of Nosferatu survived, and the film, starring Max Schreck as the repulsive, undead Count Orlok, would become a classic of silent horror. Director F.W. Murnau, who just one year earlier had directed Bela in a similarly unauthorized German adaptation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, would soon travel to Hollywood, where he'd direct maybe the peak of Hollywood silent filmmaking, Sunrise. The Vampire would travel to Hollywood via a more circuitous route. After Nosferatu, a British actor named Hamilton Dean wrote his own English-language theatrical adaptation of the Stoker text and mounted a production in which he played the vampire. This version was a huge hit in the British provinces, which it toured for three years before finally opening in London. In 1927, Horace Liveright, a publisher who had made a living cheaply republishing European novels in America saw the London production of Dracula and decided to try to produce the play in New York. This production would seek to bring the vampire back to his Transylvanian roots. Instead of casting a British or American actor, Liveright sought a tall, distinctly European actor for the role of the vampire. Bela was brought in to read by a director who had seen one of his phonetically memorized performances on the New York stage. Liveright wasn't crazy about his audition, but Bela, in need of any kind of income, agreed to work cheap. He got the part, and his success playing Dracula on stage would start a chain reaction. It wouldn't just change Bela Lugosi's own life, it would fundamentally change the futures of Universal Studios and every Hollywood studio. And it would eventually lead to the creation of the monster that would help stall Lugosi's career in its tracks and the breakout of the actor who would eclipse him. Dracula was a sold out smash hit, running for nine months on Broadway and then moving to Los Angeles. Lugosi would later tell interviewers that the audiences were primarily female, with men usually coming to the play only to escort their wives. Bela bragged about the effect he had on his sex-starved female fans.
2: Women wrote me letters. Ah, what letters women wrote me. Young girls. Women from 17 to 30. Letters of a horrible hunger. And through these letters, couched in terms of shuddering, transparent fear, there ran the hideous note of hope. They hoped that I was Dracula. It was the embrace of death their subconscious was yearning for, death, the final triumphant lover. It made me know that the women of America are unsatisfied. Famished, craving sensation, even though it be the sensation of death, draining the red blood of life.
0: One of his female fans was Clara Bow, the It Girl megastar who was at the peak of her career starring in the film that was about to win the first Best Picture Oscar, Wings. Clara went to see Dracula at the Biltmore in Los Angeles, went backstage to meet Bela, and started an affair with him that lasted over a year. In 1928, Lugosi was exactly twice Beau's age. A year later, when Beatrice Woodruff Weeks, Bela's third wife, Filed for divorce from Lugosi after four days of marriage, she told the newspapers that the actor's ongoing passion for Clara Bow was the reason her marriage couldn't work. Lugosi would have a Hungarian friend paint a nude portrait of Bow, not from life, but based on Bela's memory of her. And that painting hung in his home until he died and was recently sold at auction for $30,000. Lugosi played Dracula on stage for about two years. Perhaps he wouldn't have stayed with the gig for so long, but in spite of his success as the vampire, the only film parts he was offered were small. Finally, in the summer of 1929, he was given his first significant part in a sound film as a detective in a supernatural-tinged murder mystery called The 13th Chair, directed by Todd Browning. For the next few years, while continuing to play Dracula in various stage productions around the country, Bela filmed bit parts in movies here and there. Like Boris Karloff, he was more than once cast as an evil Arab. After years of playing the vampire, Lugosi felt the starring role in any Dracula film adaptation was rightfully his. And when he heard that Universal had made a deal with the Stoker family to film an authorized adaptation, he began pitching himself for the role. Junior Lemley didn't want to cast Lugosi because he thought the film needed star power to attract an audience. Lon Chaney was Universal's first choice to play the vampire, but he was dying of bronchial cancer at the time. Browning favored casting Lugosi because he wasn't a star. And Junior finally came around, because, again, Bela agreed to work cheap. His salary for starring in Dracula totaled $3,500. He had no profit participation, no bonus for a big box office. And the box office would turn out to be big. Dracula single-handedly reversed Universal's Dire Financial Forecast, in 1931. I've read modern criticisms of Dracula that focus on its quote-unquote disappointing direction, suggesting that director Todd Browning failed to reimagine the stage Dracula for the screen. I think these criticisms are crazy. To me, Browning's Dracula is not the best of the 1930s horror movies— but its aesthetic was so influential on what came later that to criticize it for a lack of camera movement seems to miss the point, especially since Browning does judiciously move his camera, usually dollying in on a character at a pace that feels terrifyingly urgent to tell the viewer to get anxious about something happening or about to happen. Dracula makes the most of the limited technology available to a filmmaker in 1930, when directors were still figuring out how to move the camera in relation to sync sound recording equipment. This kind of compromise becomes one of the film's strengths. Dracula perfectly pairs the visual storytelling of the silent era to a narrative rich with memorable dialogue and an incredibly effective sound design which eschews score for Foley effects and even more creepily, silence.
1: This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on Mubi is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover. Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from inland Oregon who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's mubicom slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride.
0: Browning milks much value out of giant, intricately designed sets. One Lugosi biography I read complained that a staircase set that is only seen for a few seconds in the movie was an example of how Universal was, quote-unquote, inefficient and wasteful. But 90 years removed from Universal's financial troubles, I'm glad they wasted that money. The large fantasy spaces created around the actors allow Browning to get away with juggling the other elements available to him. Often his most exciting visuals are not attached to dialogue. Think of the wide shot of Dracula's virgins waking from their coffins. Or think of what is probably the signature image of the movie, the frequent close-ups of Lugosi staring into the camera lens with a strip of light illuminating his eyes, suggesting the vampire's ability to use his eyes to control minds. This image of Lugosi's eyes created by Browning and his cinematographer, Carl Frund, would be repeated in countless Lugosi films of the next three decades. It was that effectively chilling a visual shorthand for invisible evil at work. If the visuals of Dracula have aged well, it may be difficult to judge Lugosi's performance almost a century later. Lugosi admitted that he had to unlearn much of his stage version of the character because the camera requires something different than the live audience. He talked of Browning repressing him, and yet still the performance is frequently what we would today identify as too much, which gives it the quality of camp. None of this is exactly Lugosi's fault. If anything, the popularity of Dracula and its longevity— created a new monster in that it's become so familiar that aspects that were intended to be serious now play as silly. For instance, Lugosi inserted pauses in his delivery in an effort to create suspense. Here, he serves the real estate agent Renfield a drink.
2: This is very old wine. I hope You will
1: like it. Aren't
2: you drinking? I never drink. Why?
0: Today, when there's no suspense to be had about Dracula, like pretty much everyone knows he's an undead dude who sucks blood, the pauses can act as though they're opening the door to a punchline. But weirdly... That makes me like Lugosi's Dracula more, not less. Once he's invited you to laugh with him as Dracula, when you watch him in subsequent films, you feel like he's letting you in on the private thrill of villainy. Even when his performances are hampered by his English skills, or lack thereof, there's so much joy to be had in going along with him on a maniacal ride. The camp thing wasn't a problem for critics in 1931, because they had never seen this, or anything like it, on screen before. Lugosi got generally great reviews for his performance in Dracula. He'd enjoy a honeymoon with critics on this, his first starring role in an American film. The honeymoon wouldn't last. (laughs) It can also be tough today to see Lugosi and his vampire as a legitimate agent of seduction. But that is how many writers have described Lugosi's Dracula, with even modern male writers who may have seen the film for the first time when they were young enough to not know much about how sexuality worked in the real world, using words like suave to describe Lugosi's effect. Writings from the 1930s and many decades after refer to the supposed sexiness of what today plays like a middle-aged man preying on inappropriately young women. But there's two things to keep in mind here. One is that, whether you find Lugosi attractive or not, and after watching enough of his films, I sort of do because I've chosen to focus on his resemblance to early 80s Ben Gazzara, there had never been a supernatural villain on movie screens who presented himself as a gentleman, even a dandy, the way Lugosi did. Nosferatu, for instance, really looked like a creature from beyond the grave who slept in a coffin filled with old dirt. And Lon Chaney's horror characters were fully grotesque. The image of Lugosi walking down a London street in Dracula wearing a top hat and cane and formal cape could be inserted into a 1930s romantic comedy about partner swapping in luxury hotels. And actually, this is the most chilling aspect of the film, the idea that evil can walk around among us looking like a rich guy, that the man you're sitting next to at the opera, in fine clothes and with the refined European air may have just murdered a woman in the street. Universal hedged their bets in Dracula's initial marketing. Unsure that audiences were ready for what was really the first American, all-talking, all-horror movie, they decided to market it as a gothic romance. Posters branded the film as the story of the strangest passion the world has ever known, and a trade journal ad claimed, the crimson kiss of Dracula will thrill them to the core. Lugosi chose to believe the hype that Dracula was more of a lady killer than an actual killer of women. His success as Dracula inflated Lugosi's ego and cemented his personal belief that he was destined to be remembered as one of the great lovers a man who was proud of his conquests in his off hours. As Dracula, he had now proudly embodied a mythical creature who we spoke of as though he was some kind of exalted Transylvanian pickup artist and not a make-believe parasite preying on vulnerable female virgins. One 1932 article about Lugosi and Karloff's supposed duel claimed that while both actors were in the same room as the reporter, Lugosi gave Karloff some dating advice. The first step of a successful seduction, according to Lugosi, was to take the date to see Dracula. And then...
2: As she sees me, the bat-like vampire swoop through an open casement into some girl's boudoir, there to sink teeth into neck and drink blood, She will thrill through every nerve and fiber. That is your cue to draw close to her, Boris. When she is limp as a rag, take her where you will. Do with her what you will. Bite her on the neck. The love bite is the beginning. In the end, you too, Boris, will become a vampire. You will see generations live and die. You will see a baby girl born to some woman and wait a mere 16 to 18 years for her to grow up, so that you can sink fangs into a soft white neck and drink a scarlet stream. You will be irresistible for you will have in your powerful body the very heat of hell The virility of Satan.
0: This probably wasn't said. It probably didn't happen. And if it did, these were probably lines written for Lugosi by a universal publicist. But it's evidence that the most tangible advantage Dracula had over Frankenstein and Lugosi had over Karloff was that the terror the vampire represented was metaphorically, if not actually, a sexual threat. Before Dracula was released, and while it was making its way around the country in a national rollout, Lugosi shot a number of films which allowed him to play a variety of different roles. He was an Arab prince in Women of All Nations, a fortune teller in a Charlie Chan mystery set in Hawaii, a stereotypically hot-tempered South American named Pancho, in the comedy Broad-Minded. But once it was apparent that Dracula was the kind of hit that could change the fortunes of the studio, Carl Lemly Jr. decided to double down on the horror genre and his new horror star. He instructed his staff to start looking in the literary archives for potential second comings of Dracula. They dug up two possibilities. Murders in the Rue Morgue, an Edgar Allan Poe story about a murderous ape, and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Lugosi would star in Universal's loose adaptation of the Poe story as Dr. Miracle, a scientist who presents his research about the evolutionary relationship between apes and humans at a carnival sideshow, where his Darwin-esque claims are laughed at and angrily refuted by the paying customers.
2: Can you understand what he said, or have you forgotten? I have relearned his language. Listen. <laughs> I will translate what he says. My home is in the African jungle where I lived with my father and my mother and my brothers and sisters. But I was captured by a band of hairless white apes and carried away to a strange land. I'm in the prime of my strength. And I'm lonely.
0: This scene puts a modern viewer in sympathy with the Doctor, who appears at first to have a more progressive worldview than the ignorant Victorians in the audience. But he loses our goodwill pretty quickly. After the show, the Doctor lures a prostitute to his lair and injects her with ape's blood in an attempt to create a mate for his lonely gorilla. This experiment kills her, and the disappointed Miracle opens a trap door, allowing the corpse to fall into the river. When the river is dredged and the corpse brought to the morgue, we learn she is the third such body found with similar injection site injuries. Dr. Miracle is styled nothing like Dracula, but again, Lugosi's eyes are made a focus of his performance. They're framed here by wildly bushy eyebrows, which Lugosi manipulates for maximum comic and creep effect. Beautifully directed by Frenchman Robert Florey, Murders in the Rue Morgue anticipates King Kong, released two years after Rue Morgue was shot, in turning a gorilla into a character that does bad things while coming from an essentially sympathetic place. Like, it's not cool that this ape kidnaps two women and kills one of them, but he's lonely, and he's been raised by a madman. What do you expect? Maybe audiences weren't ready for this, or maybe the man-in-a-suit gorilla was too obviously fake, but viewers at the New York premiere of Murders in the Rue Morgue laughed at the film's ape chase climax. The risible elements of the film overshadowed Lugosi's committed performance as the mad scientist, embodying reason and passion gone ends justify the means insane. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else and they ask me how I feel about it And then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel. And a lot of the time, my answer is nope. Because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on, or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com/ymrt today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp h-e-l-p, dot com slash y-m-r-t. Lugosi had hoped to play the ultimate version of such a character, the doctor whose belief in the possibilities of science overwhelm his moral compass, in Frankenstein. Rue Morgue was a B-Studios B-movie, made for a budget about a quarter of the size of Dracula's, and it was not a hit or appreciated by critics. In the months immediately following Dracula, Frankenstein was where the studio was putting its money and energy. Various explanations for why Bela Lugosi was not cast in Frankenstein have floated throughout history. We know he wanted to play Dr. Frankenstein, but Universal saw him only as a potential monster. We know they went as far as to shoot a makeup test featuring Lugosi as the monster, and that it was shot by Robert Flory. We know that after this test, Florey and Lugosi were assigned to murders in the Rue Morgue instead of Frankenstein. What we don't know for sure is whether or not Bela had any choice in the matter. He would forever claim that he turned down the role of Frankenstein's monster. Bela had seen Dracula as a seducer and he believed he had a sexy image to uphold. That, plus the fact that the monster was a non-speaking role, made him feel like it would be a step down, career-wise, to take the part. He was Hollywood's biggest horror star after Dracula, and he thought he could afford to be choosy. He thought wrong. His reign as the horror hunk du jour would be extremely brief. And his status as the only game in Horror Town would end as soon as Frankenstein, starring not Bela but Boris Karloff, hit the screen in late 1931. In 1932, Universal decided not to extend Lugosi's contract. About a year after becoming the first superstar of the talking horror era, Bela Lugosi would find himself without a studio home and in desperate need of a salary. This meant that he worked a lot. By the summer of 1932, his prospects in film were generally bleak, and financially, he was way overextended. He owed a local carpenter $279, which was roughly 10 times what Lugosi had in the bank. In 1933... He filed for bankruptcy, which didn't help his negotiation power when he was offered work. A look at Lugosi's filmography for the 1930s, after Frankenstein, suggests that the actor was so happy for work that he took virtually any role offered to him, and that he was willing to do it for cheap. He was willing to slum it on what was called Poverty Row, which was the colloquialism for the low-rent studios that cranked out B-quality movies, outfits with names like Monogram and PRC. Lugosi was an enormous fish in these small, murky ponds, and at one point, he accepted a relatively large payday to star in a serial-for-bargain-basement-studio Mascot. These lesser studios exploited Lugosi's need for money and his marquee value simultaneously. ...and indiscriminately. Sometimes he stumbled into a good thing. Immediately after Universal let him go, he accepted what he reported to be a mere three-figure payday... ...to star in an extremely low-budget independent film... ...called White Zombie... ...which would turn out to be one of the Lugosi's most memorable roles. Outfitted in patchy facial hair that apparently inspired many a teenage burnout many years later... Lugosi plays a voodoo-practicing mill owner in Haiti, whose entire staff consists of undead slave labor. When a local plantation owner falls in love with a young woman who is planning to marry her fiancé on his land, Lugosi agrees to put the woman under his death spell on the wedding night, so that her husband will think she's dead, and her admirer can keep her locked up in his mansion and use her totally compliant body for whatever. Turns out, sex with an animated corpse is not all he hoped it would be. But Bela explains that his customer might not like what happens when the curse is reversed.
2: I thought that beauty alone would satisfy But the soul is gone. I can't bear those empty, staring eyes. Oh, forgive me, Madeline, forgive me. I can't bear it any longer. I must take you back. Back to the grave, monsieur? No. You must put the light back into her eyes and bring laughter to her lips. She must be gay and happy again. You paint a charming picture, monsieur. One that I should like to see myself. How do you suppose those eyes will regard you when the brain is able to understand? Better to see hatred in them than that dreadful emptiness. Perhaps you're right. It would be a pity to destroy such a lovely love. Let's bring to the future of this flower. A glass of wine? <laughs> Silver, bring wine. We have a
0: toast to drink. The number one lesson of Bela Lugosi movies. When Bela Lugosi offers you a glass of wine, you say no. White Zombie was, justifiably, a big moneymaker, and Lugosi is its true star. Compared to the supporting cast, which is populated by unknowns so blank and wooden that it's not always clear who is and who is not under the zombie spell, Bela really stands out. And he also seems to be having even more fun than usual. Unfortunately, gems like White Zombie we were in danger of being drowned out by all the drak. Bela was making. Any film containing an appearance by Bela Dracula Lugosi was billed with his name on the marquee, whether he was the true star of the film or just a cameo player, and whether it was a high-quality chiller effort like Murder on the Rue Morgue or a cheapie like Night of Terror, in which Bela had a small part as a Hindu servant. He didn't always play supernatural or evil characters. In The Death Kiss, a low-budget murder mystery set at a movie studio, Lugosi had one of his most straight and most boring roles as the studio fixer. This was a movie in which a studio mogul, apparently an Eastern European Jew in the model of Carl Lemley, had this reaction upon learning that one of his stars has been killed.
2: Hello. What? Brent? Shot? Dead? Oh, that's gonna cost me a
0: fortune. A movie like The Death Kiss gave Lugosi a chance to play something other than a villain, which may have been what he was looking for. But his casting played a cruel trick on the audience's expectations. A viewer familiar with Lugosi from Dracula might assume the story was heading toward a supernatural twist, or that Lugosi would be revealed eventually to be the diabolical killer. Such a viewer would be disappointed. Not only is the Dracula actor a red herring, but Lugosi has barely anything to do in the death kiss, and nothing he does is very interesting. Thus, while Bela Lugosi worked steadily to refill his bank account— his Dracula cachet and his credibility as a star began to drain away in the process. Universal, however, believed that two horror stars could be better than one, and in 1934, they teamed Lugosi and Boris Karloff together for the first time. We will discuss that run of movies in a later episode— But suffice it to say, even after their first on-screen pairing resulted in a very good film, Lugosi's life was expensive enough that he found himself back at Poverty Row Studio Monogram, caked in yellowface to play the titular Chinese gangster in a yellow menace exploitation film called Mysterious Mr. Wong. Mr. Wong would not be Lugosi's rock bottom. One thing that's interesting about Lugosi's career is that its trajectory doesn't really fit a traditional rise and fall model. He'd go back and forth between high-quality movies and terrible cheap ones in a matter of months, simply because after saying no to Frankenstein, he never said no again. So it was that in 1935, even though he had long ago ceded the throne of Hollywood's top horror star to Karloff, Lugosi managed to be part of an advancement in the genre through what at first seemed to be an exploitative Dracula retread. That Dracula still had some perceived value as a property was made clear when Irving Thalberg, the most respected producer at MGM, the most prestigious studio in Hollywood, decided to try to capitalize on the success of the universal horror cycle by hiring Dracula cinematographer Carl Frund to direct a creepy Peter Laurie movie called Mad Love. Thalberg then brought Dracula director Todd Browning in to make a talking version of Browning's 1927 silent murder mystery, London After Midnight. Browning was still reeling from the reaction to his attempt to outdo Dracula, Freaks, in which he cast real circus performers in a romance of sorts about revolution amongst oppressed dwarfs. Freaks was a box office disaster that ran into much trouble with the censors, and it was banned outright in Britain. It brought the ascendancy of Browning's career to a halt, and Mark of the Vampire would be his third-to-last film. Browning consciously reassembled some members of the cast of Dracula for Mark of the Vampire, including Lugosi, who was third billed in the role of Count Mora, a character who dresses like Dracula and lives in a Prague castle resembling Dracula's, who is rumored by the terrified townsfolk to be a vampire. The major initial difference between Mora and Dracula as we met him in Lugosi's star-making film is that Mora lives with his gorgeous teenage daughter, played by Carol Borland, who also appears to be a ghostly bloodsucker. Father and daughter drift around their foggy, cobwebby estate together, their companionship hinting at a relationship closer than that of the standard father and daughter. Mark of the Vampire originally had a running time of 80 minutes, and one theory for why it currently runs just 60 minutes is that there was an incest plot that was cut by the censors. Lugosi appears in the film in what appears to be a dupe of his Dracula costume and makeup, with the one major difference being that Count Mora has a large spot of blood on his right temple. Some reports contend that Browning had originally shot a flashback, which explained how that wound got there. In life, Mora was so consumed with guilt over his lust for his own daughter that he shot first her and then himself. Guy Endor, an MGM writer who worked on the Mark of the Vampire screenplay, contended that eternal undead life together was the cosmic punishment for the incestual relationship. This sounds like a good basis for a more modern horror film but it doesn't make a ton of sense given the twist that turns Mark of the Vampire on its head in its final minutes. For much of Mark of the Vampire's running time, it feels like an improvement on the Dracula formula. The pacing is much more modern than Browning's 1931 film, and the aesthetics, though similar, are more sophisticated. In one mesmerizing shot, a bat flies out of a cloud of fog And transforms into Lugosi, prowling towards the camera with claw-ish hand outstretched in full Dracula grin. Later, a bat flying around a room slowly morphs into Carol Borland, so gradually that the actress distinctly and eerily appears to be flying with giant wings. Borland's style as the young vamp Luna, with her shaggy, butt-length hair center-parted and her long white shroud dress dragging on the floor, essentially invents the look of the Manson girls. Where Dracula was transposed to the exotic past, Mark takes place in the year it was shot, 1934, and early in the film, a character laughs off the idea that vampires could exist in the 20th century. But then a beloved, wealthy local is found dead, with two tiny marks resembling teeth in his neck. A supernatural expert, played by Lionel Barrymore, is brought to town to work with the skeptical police inspector and the dead man's daughter to determine if Count Mora and Luna are responsible. All hues to the more or less expected supernatural murder mystery narrative until minute 50 the daughter of the murdered man, sees what looks like her father playing the organ. And then... No,
2: no. I can't do it. But Miss Barton, I can't go on. But you must. You wouldn't fail us now. Miss Barton. Inspector. Inspector Newman. I can't go through with it. He looks so much like father. Even his voice. I've been willing to do all the other things you've asked of me. But this. Liz... This is more than I can endure. But don't you see this is our last chance? Everything else has failed. But you both said Otto would break down and confess if we confronted him with this gentleman, pretending to be my father. I know. We all thought our vampire scheme was so simple, so certain of success. We never thought we'd fail. I'm sorry. But, Miss Bollerton, after the attack on Mr. Vincenti, it was you who first suspected the Baron of the crime. We're positive you're right, but we lack definite proof. If you fail us now, we will never know.
0: In other words, ten minutes before the end of the film, we learn that everyone in the movie, including Barrymore's ghost hunter and the two quote-unquote vampires played by Lugosi and Borland, have been in on a plot to spook the actual killer into admitting that he both committed murder and staged the crime scene to pin it on a non-existent vampire. The rest of the film shows this plot playing out, and it works. The citizens are able to successfully draw on what they've learned from horror movies like Dracula in order to outsmart a murderer who used the trendiness of supernatural horror as a cover for his crime. Mark of the Vampire thus becomes the first meta-horror movie, revealing the construction and ultimate falseness of the genre— and acknowledging that audiences were becoming too smart to be horrified by the same old tricks. Though controversial for its twist then and now, today we can see Mark of the Vampire as the bridge between the original wave of talking horror and the jokey, spoofy second wave of monster movies to come in the following decade. Unfortunately for Bela Lugosi, the takeaway in regards to his performance is that As a star, he was hardly immortal. It was quite a come-down from Supernatural Seducer to Faker. Lugosi has no lines in the film until the very end, when he squeezes off a self-mocking boast, and is promptly brought back to Earth while his fellow actors are taking off their makeup and pulling down the set. This
2: vampire business, it has given me a great idea for a new act. Luna, in this new act, I will be the vampire. Did you watch me? I gave all of me. I was greater than any real vampire. Sure, sure. But get off your makeup. Yes, and help me with some of this packing. As we'll see
0: next week... Karloff's legend was helped by the fact that Universal made a sequel to Frankenstein that was better than the original. But though Dracula came out earlier, Universal waited until after Bride of Frankenstein to make a sequel to Dracula. And Lugosi wasn't even in it. Dracula's daughter began with a pitch, sold to Universal by the soon-to-be-legendary Gone with the Wind producer David O. Selznick, and written by John Balderston, who had contributed to the original Dracula. Based on a Bram Stoker short story called Dracula's Guest, Balderston had crafted a film built around a female vampire because he believed the censors would let a female monster get away with more than a male could. Universal promptly rewrote Balderston's treatment. And in their new version, the film began in the Middle Ages, with a pre-undead Dracula having the countryside combed for women to join his harem. A demon then turns Dracula into a vampire, and he decides to share his curse with one of the lovely ladies, who he then adopts as his daughter. The film would then jump forward to the present day, with Dracula elsewhere and his daughter run amok. But the censors objected to the first third of the new script built around Count Dracula's orgy, and another version was produced focusing just on the daughter in the present day. After initially casting Lugosi in Dracula's daughter, without the prologue, Universal couldn't find a way to use him. They ended up paying Bela $4,000 to not be in the Dracula sequel. Shortly after Dracula's daughter was finished, the Lemleys ended their run at Universal. The wave of Universal horror movies begun by Dracula ended with their departure. Not entirely because of it, but we'll talk about that more next week. Suffice it to say, never one to save his pennies, Lugosi continued to spend money like there would be another Dracula around the corner. He stuck to a health regimen involving vegetable juices and raw meat. And to that end, he had crates of goose liver imported and would drink wine mixed with sulfur water, which was his version of a daily detox. He now lived in a Hollywood Hills mansion with Lillian, his fourth wife, who Bela had married in 1933 when she was 19 and he was 51. Bela filled their home with inkwells shaped like skulls and couches shaped like coffins. He was obsessed with security and went to some length to protect his home.
2: We have four wolfhounds who, at all times, guard our bedroom doors. There is a gun in every room in the house. There are lights burning in our house all night long. There is no dark in our house ever.
0: But by 1936, work had gone dark, the mortgage was not getting paid, and Lillian was starting to complain that her husband had become so disillusioned that he had stopped even trying to find work. As Lugosi himself remembered this period,
2: I sat by the phone until I grew to the chair. A down-and-out actor is already a ghost haunting the corridors where he once walked a star.
0: He appeared in a play and a few cut-rate serials. But by 1938, Lugosi had been forced to give up his grand house for a more modest home in the valley. He had sold his cars and much of his furniture had been seized by the bank. And now... Lillian was pregnant. She gave birth to Lugosi's only son, Bela George, in January 1938. In 1939, Lugosi shot one scene in Ernst Lubitsch's Ninochka, which was billed as Greta Garbo's first comedy. Though his role was neither big nor overtly comic, Bela saw it as a chance to prove that he could be more than a mad villain. But it didn't lean to more such roles. In 1943, Universal finally made another Dracula movie, but Bela wasn't considered for the part. By now, the studio had latched onto Lon Chaney's son, a former plumber born Creighton Tull Chaney, who renamed himself Lon Chaney Jr. He would become the anchor of a new wave of monster movies, beginning with The Wolfman in 1941. On the one hand, Cheney's casting over Lugosi makes sense because Bela wasn't getting any younger. On the other hand, Lon Chaney Jr. sucks. After muddling through Hollywood for a full decade without really breaking through, Cheney Jr. became a star because The Wolfman was a big hit in spite of the fact that Cheney's pre-wolf character is an apparently dim-witted unlikable creep. Cary Grant would have had trouble making this character a bay, but Lon Chaney Jr.'s screen presence was non-existent. Rarely, if ever, had a star so devoid of charisma found such big parts in so many movies. Horror historian Wheeler Winston Dixon Claims that Lugosi was passed over for Universal's second vampire sequel, Son of Dracula, in part because by the time it was made in 1943, Lugosi was addicted to drugs. This matches up with the version of Bela Lugosi depicted in Tim Burton's film Ed Wood, in which Martin Landau, in his Oscar-winning role, plays Bela as a has-been with track marks running up and down both arms. Should I call a doctor? No.
2: This happens all the time. Is there anything I can get for you? Water or a
1: blanket? Goulash.
2: I don't know how to make goulash. Bella, what's in the needle? feet i chaser. Eddie, Eddie, I'm so broke. I don't
1: know what I'm going to
2: do. <laughs> don't worry, Bella.
0: It's true that in the early 1940s, Lugosi was first prescribed morphine as a painkiller for his sciatica, and under doctor's orders, he began injecting it himself on a daily basis, creating a dependency that would last until the mid-1950s. But drug problem or no, Universal probably wouldn't have considered the now 61-year-old Lugosi to play the original Dracula, a character who wasn't supposed to age, never mind Dracula's son. With Cheney Jr. in it, Son of Dracula bombed And Universal stopped making Dracula movies. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches... Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com/remember. 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 But Columbia, looking to cheaply try to pass from second class studio status into the rarefied realm of the real major studios, saw that Universal was having success with some of its new monster movies, such as Wolfman. Columbia's Harry Cohn decided to try to mimic the best of both the current wave of horror and the era of Lugosi's heyday, and he commissioned a script for a film pitting a Dracula esque character opposite a wolf like man because Universal owned the rights to these actual characters, in Return of the Vampire, the vampire would be called Armand Tesla, but Cohn still sought Lugosi for the part. Never a negotiator, Bela agreed to make the film for the same salary he had earned as Dracula, 13 years earlier. Lugosi's Tesla would be a depraved Romanian scientist turned vampire, who controlled his faithful assistant Andreas, now a wolfman, from beyond the grave. When Lady Ainsley, a doctor, and a professor friend discover Tesla's 200-year-old writings, they find the coffin where he sleeps and drive a stake through his heart. Andreas instantly transforms from wolfman to man-man and becomes Lady Ainsley's assistant. Two decades later, this arrangement is working well. But it's now World War II, and when two gravediggers looking to bury fallen soldiers come across Tesla's corpse, they remove the stake in his heart. The vampire rises and restores his master-slave dialectic with Andreas. Tesla then enters London society in human form, calling himself Dr. Bruckner. He creeps his way into the life of the young and beautiful Nikki, who is about to marry Lady Ainsley's son. He uses his hypnotic powers to lure her into his revenge plot against the Lady Doctor, who he blames for taking him out of commission. Who are you?
2: Why have you forced me to come here? You read your father's manuscript. Look at me, Nikki. Now tell me who I am. You are Armand Tesla. But
1: Tesla's dead.
2: I am Tesla. And I can never die. And you are mine. Mine forever. But before I take you away from here, there are many things I will make you do for me. Then you will go with me to my native country where no deaths can claim you or tear us apart. Your mind is no longer your own. I shall command and you shall obey. Look at me, Nikki. look at me, look at me.
0: In this sequence, there are two tight insert shots of Lugosi's eyes, referencing Browning's similar imagery in Dracula. But by forcing the comparison to Lugosi as Dracula, Return of the Vampire merely draws attention to the fact that as Tesla, aged, bloated Bela Lugosi, while technically giving a better performance than he did in Dracula, now poses no sexual threat whatsoever, and is just an old creeper. Return of the Vampire is entertaining enough, but it has none of the chilling imagery of the original Dracula, or even anything to match the unusual effects of Mark of the Vampire. And despite a cheeky final line, it couldn't compete on the metascale, either. The mythic power of the vampire, at least as portrayed by Lugosi, had dissipated through time. Four years later, Bela would be back at Universal and back in Dracula's cape as part of the ensemble in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, the first of several horror spoofs featuring the comic duo encountering the studio's classic monsters. With Lon Chaney Jr. already cast as the Wolfman, Universal had no Dracula, But they didn't want Bela for the part. A decade and a half had passed since his heyday, and his film career had slowed to a crawl. For weeks, Bela's agent pushed to land his client the part, to no avail. Finally, with production days away from beginning, the agent asked theater owners around the country to wire him their profits on Dracula. The agent barged into the head of Universal's office with these wires in his hand. You owe this part to Lugosi, he said. It's his part. He is Dracula. Universal gave in. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein should really be called Abbott and Costello meet Dracula. Glenn Strange was now playing the monster, who had no lines in this film, and was mostly a pawn in a plot that involved Dracula attempting to steal Costello's brain so that he could implant it into the monster and use the creature as his slave. Bela is not at his best, but in a movie in which the still-fucking-awful Lon Chaney Jr. is basically the hero, Bela's unfortunately aged version of the undead count is suitably diabolical. And Bela whose entrance comes in a long scene in which he comically taunts a terrified Costello, shows a flair for comedy. It was not a pleasant shoot for Bela, who took playing the vampire seriously, even in a comedy. His apparent humorlessness led to other performers making fun of him behind his back. Bela could handle that, but he was driven to a breaking point by Lon Chaney Jr., who was frequently drunk and unprepared on set, and who condescendingly referred to Bela as Pop. Bela seethed with anger that this asshole had usurped him as Universal's horror go-to, as anyone would, because Lon Chaney Jr. was the worst. Reports vary, but Lugosi was apparently paid either $8,000 or $15,000 for 10 weeks of work on the movie. Either way, though a fraction of the six figures that Abaddon Costello were each making, this would have been a big payday for Bela. It would be his last big payday, and his goodbye to the Dracula role. Next week, we will shift focus to Boris Karloff, And trace his relationship to the monster that made his career. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. Our editors are Sam Dingman and Jacob Smith. Our production and research assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Special thanks this week to our special guest, Taryn Killam, who will be playing Bela Lugosi all season. We'll also have a different special guest next week playing Boris Karloff. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website. You must remember There you'll find show notes which include information like the music used in each episode, our research sources, and much more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at rememberthispod And we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you want to help us out, one way to do that is by subscribing to us and rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. It really helps other people find it. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.